0: Automate your security framework compliance with sponsor Drata. Drata delivers continuous compliance, no matter how fast your company is growing. Find out more at drata.com/partner/day2cloud. That's d r a t a dot com/partner/day2cloud welcome to day two cloud ned just attended edge field day two a tech field day event and in today's episode we are going to discuss the highlights that struck ned from presenters NodeWeaver, weaver hpe and store magic okay ned i said edge field day two so this is a tech field day event about edge going to be focused on edge computing so maybe we got to start with some definitions what would you say edge is to begin with now that you've been at that event Yeah. I mean, given this is the second edge field day, obviously this is relatively new
1: territory. And just like the term cloud, the term edge is a very contested word that has a lot of possible definitions. So I'm going to give like my view of it. And this is not canonical, right?
0: Can can I guess what edge is? (laughs) Go ahead. Does it mean it's my own data center again? Is that what it means? No, no, it's not. (laughs) Okay. That that was a little, that was a spicy take. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. What is edge then, Ned?
1: I mean, if your data center is sufficiently small, it could be edge. (laughs) So I think of edge in two different ways and I don't think of it as a location. So just like the cloud is not a location, the edge is not necessarily a location. So the first thing that I think about is constraints. Generally speaking, edge environments are going to have a lot of constraints that a typical data center or the cloud does not have. So you're going to have very limited space to put your stuff in. You're going to have a limited amount of power. And that could be like you're running off a car battery, buddy, or it could be yeah, we can get like 100 amp service, but that's it, you know.
0: So I'm thinking of like like telco CEOs that are little pop-ups, you know, these kind of things. It's basically a closet or it might even be a half rack depending on where it's been deployed. That sort of scenario. Yeah, could be
1: that. Uh, another scenario could be The compute that runs on an oil rig. So another component of this is limited bandwidth, you might not have a solid and like wide open network connection to the larger internet or back to a central office or anything like that. So you might be pushing everything through a 5g modem, or you might be pushing everything through a satellite, you know, so that's depending on how far a field we're going. Those all encompass edge. So lots of limitations and constraints.
0: That particular constraint about the connectivity also hints at why you might need edge because getting your data out from wherever it is and out to somewhere that could do work on that data could be very difficult. And you know, lots of latency just can't get it done in timely fashion. You got to have some local compute there at your edge. <laughs>
1: yeah, and there was some discussion over data storage devices like Snowball from aws that gets shipped to you you load it up with data and then you ship it back to them and because of the network constraints it's actually faster to move the data by shipping the physical device back to aws than trying to upload it across whatever link you have available so like i get that
0: yeah okay so if we're deeply constrained and i've got this compute stack it's got to be more than just bare metal though right Right.
1: So there needs to be a whole bunch of other things. And that's sort of the operational model that I want to get to in a moment. But two other big things I want to mention about the edges. You cannot expect any kind of local tech expertise or any actual humans in some cases to be available immediately. So unlike a data center, when something goes wrong and you've got an army of techs that can run out and roll a crash cart and get your server back up, if something goes down at the edge, That might be an eight-hour or 12-hour drive for someone to roll a truck out there to get hands on the device. Or it might be in a location that has people, but none of them are technically trained. Think like a retail location. Or going back to the oil rig example, they know how to run an oil rig, but they probably don't know like the best way to swap out a disk on a server. So you're going to want stuff that is really low-touch, very automated. Ideally, zero touch to install so you can just ship it to them and be like, plug two cables in. That's all you have to do. And we got the rest. And you want some sort of centralized management and monitoring around this, especially because the other thing about Edge is it tends to be a lot of little things in a bunch of locations. So think like 10,000 stores or uh, another example of an Edge deployment is there's all these signaling stations along train tracks you might have a thousand two thousands of those signaling stations and each one of them is running some sort of compute there that you want to manage and monitor
0: so this could be a really small box we shouldn't be thinking about necessarily racks of servers it could be it sounds like a really small device it can
1: be a lot of the examples of edge devices are either really small form factor servers so something that takes up like one u high and half a u wide Or it could be something even lower powered than that, something that runs on an ARM processor like a Raspberry Pi or something similar to a Raspberry Pi. So we're not just talking about x86. We're talking about x86 and ARM in this case. So do they have to be weather hardened? Depends on the application. So some of the presenters were talking about military applications where they might be in the theater of battle and in very rugged conditions so some of these edge devices are ruggedized to deal with stuff like extreme temperatures you know getting wet (laughs) um lots of dust and dirt so yeah it could definitely
0: include ruggedized devices okay so, Edge, to me, just reading back to you what you just described, we've got constraints that are driving this need for compute on-site somewhere, you know, way out on the fringes of of network connectivity. Uh, the, the bandwidth might be very poor, and the stack is automated, whatever it is, whether it's a single device or you know multiples of servers. We're, this thing is heavily automated because you don't have IT expertise out there. You need to plug and play and have this thing go. So there's a bunch of special needs there, but it, it also feels like a lot of the technology we've had over the last several years are coming together to build this and make this happen. Uh, some of that from the cloud providers, like uh, Outposts and so on, but more, I was thinking more along the lines of what we've done with Composable, what we've done with private clouds and all the automation tooling out there. It feels like, yeah, that between the software stack and the hardware, we're now at a place where, I wouldn't say easy, but I mean, there's easy ways to productize all of that now. and and. That's the edge market, sounds like.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely a component of that is the move towards hyper-converged infrastructure. If you can get your hyper-converged infrastructure in like a two-node type system, that's something that could be deployed in edge location because it's really just two servers and those servers are running the whole network storage and compute stack between them.
0: So by automated, does that also imply there's some kind of custom operating system or something on there? They're not just running Linux. Is there more magic happening? There can be. And that's actually one of the presenters we're going to get into is the way that they've baked in a
1: lot of that automation to make it as zero touch as possible. So you ready to get into presenters then? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about some presenters. Start with Solidime? Yeah, we'll start with Solidime. They they went first, so we'll talk about them first. So Solidime is a storage company, and they're actually a spin out from Intel's Optane Group. And some SK Hynix folks, if you're familiar with the Optane storage, that was Intel's attempt at basically persistent memory class storage was the idea so kind of think of it as persistent storage that goes in dim slots
0: if i remember right it actually had some fans and uh had had some things going for it technologically speaking i forget why it died off it was a competing standard or what happened but uh but yeah it seemed like it had a burst of activity and excitement and then and then went away whatever so so solidime do they have something to do with optane is that technology living on or are they just folks that have were there and have gone on to do these other things
1: They're using some of the technologies that they developed for Optane around solid-state storage to build these new drives that they've been coming out with. And their whole pitch here is we've created SSDs that are focused on edge-type applications. And for that reason, we've done some, and not special sizes, but some special configurations that might help you if you have an edge set of systems that need pretty good storage.
0: What does storage for the Edge mean? Does that mean it's about the environmental uh, resistance? It can handle the, uh, the tough environment. Does that mean it's got specific performance characteristics? Those of the workloads they anticipate might be running at the Edge?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of both of those. The primary argument they were making is hard drives, traditional spinning rust is not a good fit for Edge. It's power-hungry. Tends to take up a decent amount of space and it's not particularly good at handling the rugged environmental conditions you might find yourself in. And so, for that reason, most of the storage that's deployed at the edge is going to be solid state. So, beyond that, it really comes down to what does your workload profile look like? What sort of data are you dealing with at the edge? And that really depends on the use case. So, they were talking about some use cases where you just have a sea of sensors. Think like A car. I just bought an EV. That thing has hundreds of sensors in it, all of which are generating some kind of data. Now, how useful and how long I need to hold that data is is probably a question for another time. But certainly if you're developing an electric vehicle and you want to collect all that sensor data to analyze it, You need something on the vehicle that can ingest all that information and maybe do a little bit of computation on it, some filtering or summarization before you try to offload it. So they were pushing basically two different types of drives, two different profiles. One is their uh, QLC drive, which is for, uh, what does that stand for? Quad level cell, which gets down into the actual Architecture of the SSDs themselves. I don't know how familiar everyone is (laughs) listening with MLC versus QLC versus SLC. So maybe I need to dig into that a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like like the SLC acronym. I've seen the other two. I hadn't. I couldn't have articulated those differences.
1: The original SSDs are the SLCs, single level cell. So it all refers to how many bits you're trying to store in a single cell at a time, and there's a trade-off here. The more bits that you can store in a single cell, the more storage you can get out of that cell. So if I can store four bits instead of one in a single cell, I get four times the amount of storage. However, there is a penalty that you pay, especially for writing to that cell uh, and sometimes for reading to a certain degree. So because there is a performance penalty and there's also a, a wear and tear penalty because you're hitting that cell more often. So SLCs tend to be more performant and longer lasting, but they come in smaller storage sizes because you're not getting the efficiency of storing more bits in one bin. And then they made multi-level cell, which is really just two bits per cell. And then TLC was triple level and then QLC is quad level. So you can see they probably should have called the second one dual level, but I don't think they realized they were going to go with a triple eventually. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So what Solodyne was pushing was if you are in an environment where you need to house a lot of data and you're not going to be doing a ton of analysis on it, then these QLC drives are the bomb. They were showing off a 61 terabyte drive. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So 61 terabytes on a single drive. And they were talking about... Uh, If you could load up an entire regular 1U server with these drives, then you would have, I forget how many petabytes, it was some ridiculous number of petabytes that you could get loaded into this server. So if you need a lot of storage and it doesn't have to be incredibly performant, just good, then you can go with their QLC line at the edge.
0: Are they selling me drives or are they selling me a box with a bunch of storage in it?
1: They're selling you drives. So they partner with... OEMs to include the drives on their systems, or you could buy direct from them. But typically you would go through some other vendor and request the Solidime drives to be
0: part of them. So I could spec a box from HP, Dell, whoever, and spec Solidime drives for certain of the product lines. Absolutely. The other thing they got into, and this
1: is not something I've been keeping track of. So I was like, what are these acronyms? Explain them to me. Uh, They were talking about the updated form factor for ssds and if you think about like the traditional form factor in servers you had like three and a half inch drives and two and a half inch drives and those were like the hot swappable ones and they used the i think it's called the u.2 interface on the back for power and data yeah that not the world's greatest interface not the most flexible one and also had limitations and when you want to move up to pci uh, express five and six so the new form factor Uh, It's called EDSFF, which I don't remember what it stands for. But if you see EDSFF, they're talking about this new form factor and connector on the back. And it comes in basically two sizes. One's a really long, skinny size. It looks like a ruler, which is it used to be called the Intel ruler before it got adopted by SNIA, who does like the standards for this stuff. And now it's called the E3.L, L for long. And then they have like a shorter version of it. That's the E3.S. But they both have the same connector on the back. And it's a much smaller connector. It's hot swappable. And it can run at PCI 5 and 6 bus speeds, which is huge. That's very important for modern servers.
0: And so the key here is going to be a server with a motherboard that has been architected with that interface. Yes. Is that becoming... Like, I can expect that in a server class uh, motherboard now that that's going to have that interface. Is it taking over? Is it more of a specialized thing? I got to kind of look for it. Oh, that's got the one I want. You would have to look for it, but it's going to be common enough that you're not going to have to look hard.
1: Okay. So that was Solidime. Their pitch was we're a storage company who also creates these really high capacity drives that fit well in edge use cases. So I wouldn't call them an edge company necessarily, but they have a solution that fits well for edge storage.
0: Okay. Uh, Now, did they mention anything about supply chain challenges? Uh, That used to be, like a year or two ago, we were asking that question all the time. It feels like it's less and less of a problem, but there's still certain classes of chips and where it still seems to be a a bit of a thing. Did
1: they talk about availability at all? They didn't mention any issues with availability or supply chain. They might not have wanted to bring it up if there were those issues and no one asked about it. But uh, yeah, they didn't mention anything regarding supply chain.
0: Did they happen to talk about pricing? What the heck does a 61 terabyte drive cost me? Cuz it ain't a thousand bucks. It's gonna be a little more. If you got to ask.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can't right. afford it. These things are pricey, right? And they have different sizes of the drive. But yeah, if you want a 61 terabyte SSD drive for your system, you're going to be shelling out a decent chunk of change for that. They didn't say actual pricing, but I'd imagine since it's enterprise class and all that, you're you're talking, you know, Four or five thousand at
0: least for that drive, maybe more. Mm, I would have guessed even more than that. Okay, four or five thousand. I mean, I'm not shell it out for it, but it doesn't sound too bad if it's actually down in that (laughs) price range. I I would be curious to see. Let's take a quick sponsor break. Drata DRATA provides compliance automation. That means if you're working with a security framework like SOC 2, ISO 27001, PCI DSS, GDPR, HIPAA, CCPA, FIEC, various NIST standards, or CMMC. Drata helps. Over 3,000 companies use Drata, including Lemonade, Notion, and Fivetran. Drata collects information from your tech stack and maps it onto security frameworks using over 80 integrations, including AWS, Azure, GitHub, Okta, and Cloudflare. Drata offers automated, dynamic policy templates you implement to become compliant. Drata will continuously monitor your compliance state, so you'll know if a system becomes non-compliant and can alert the system owner. What if you need some advice? Drata has a team of former auditors who have conducted 500 plus audits, available for your questions, including regular meetings and pre-audit planning. So say goodbye to manual evidence collection and hello to automated compliance by visiting drata.com/partner/day2cloud. That's d-r-a-t-a.com/partner/day2cloud. Bringing automation to compliance at Drata speed. Okay, so so that's solid. Dime. But we move to Store Magic. Yep, Store Magic. This is another storage type company. But
1: what they're talking about is a different level of storage. We're not talking about the physical drives anymore. Now we're talking more about the abstraction of storage and presenting it as something that virtual machines could use. They are the spiritual successor to HPE's Store Virtual product. I don't know if you ever encountered that product. I did not. No. Lucky you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, Ned has feelings. (laughs) Well, I encountered it a few times out in the wild and it was a really good product if you were deploying it for its intended purpose. But the thing is, it was so much cheaper than HPE's other SAN sort of options that it was often sold in place of what should have been a more robust deployment. So then when I would come in later and encounter it, I'd be like, Well, you're asking it to do a thing it just can't do. And we're going to have to replace your solution. And then they saw the dollar signs and they weren't happy with me. And I was not happy
0: with the previous architect. But that is such a great conversation to have with a client. Oh, yes. Oh, boy, (laughs) boy. Lots of fun. So you say Stormagic is the spiritual successor to HPE Store Virtual. Okay. What does that mean? Does that mean that it's got actual product heritage that goes back to a similar code base or just it feels similar to you?
1: Um they weren't super specific about the code base. I think some of the guys that's founded Store Magic came from HPE. So I'm sure they brought if not the actual code, the ideas behind it with them. And their main focus, what they're focused on is providing a simple, low-cost storage solution for edge and like robo sites. Basically, their, their core assumption is you're probably not going to drop a storage array at the edge. You're not rolling a VMAX out to one of these sites. But your virtual machines and other workloads need some kind of storage to run. You probably want it to be decently performant and highly available. How can you do that with the minimum amount of hardware? And so that's sort of their primary focus is. you don't have a ton of hardware. You might have older hardware you want to use. You're not going to slap a storage array in. So how do you get persistent, highly available storage out of these locations?
0: And again, this is a software layer that goes on top of hardware. They're not selling me a full storage solution, if you will.
1: Absolutely. So this is software defined storage. Uh, Think like uh, vSAN from VMware.
0: I was just going to ask you that. So, okay, more like vSAN. Okay, okay.
1: Very similar in nature. Uh, Based off their pricing, less expensive (laughs) than vSAN. If you aren't already licensed up for vSAN, maybe it's gone down in price, but I remember it being fairly pricey uh, in terms of licensing. But yeah, in many ways, it's the same kind of idea. You have two nodes in your cluster. Each node has locally attached storage on it, and then you use that locally attached storage to build virtual volumes out of that storage. And the virtual volumes are mirrored between the two nodes in the cluster so that you have a highly available system.
0: And then the data itself is distributed across whatever the physical disk is in its own custom scheme.
1: Yeah. And so one of the big things they were pushing was the two systems involved in the cluster don't have to be the same exact system, which is a little bit different than in like vSAN configurations where you might run into trouble if you have a slightly different RAID controller array across the two systems, let alone, you know, having the same exact capacity drives across both systems and all that jazz. Stormagic is not worried about that. You just need capacity on both systems and you're going to provision an equivalent amount of capacity on both systems so it can be mirrored.
0: Well what's intriguing about that is the performance challenges that you can run into. You could have two systems that if they're substantially different, the performance envelope for the the disk is it could be radically different. I I understand why you as the software designer that might want to write this abstraction layer for the storage if you will. I need to know that the drives underneath are pretty much the same and then put those requirements in place. If you don't have that requirement, and it sounds like Store Magic doesn't, you've got to accommodate some other interesting scenarios with getting your reads and writes to and from the desk. It's just, it's another challenge to add to their solution.
1: Yeah. And for that reason, I think this would not be a solution if you need an extreme level of guaranteed performance. But if you're, I just need persistent available storage in like a hundred retail locations or something. And all I want to do is ship two boxes to them. This works,
0: you know, in in retail locations, you're not dealing with massive data sets. You're not dealing with massive number crunching. You're dealing with, you know, transaction volume. And I don't know what all the the inventory management, what all they might be running at that retail site, way lower volume, way smaller amounts of data that they're typically working with. Mm -hmm. And their solution works across three different hypervisors.
1: So it can do storage for VMware. It can do it for Hyper-V or it can do it for KVM. So all those different hypervisor types are supported. It doesn't support any ARM-based servers. This is strictly an X86 play, which not terribly surprising in that regard. Um, just um, I'm assuming they haven't written the code that would work well with ARM. Because it's only a two- node cluster, you need a third component to act as a quorum witness. And so what they make available is they offer it as a service, if you'd like, or you can set up your own witness device, and the witness device doesn't have to be in the same location as your two-node cluster. You can set up your witness at the central office, let's say, and you can do a thousand to one ratio for the witness. So you can have that witness
0: being the witness for a thousand clusters. Huh, okay. So they're taking some of the challenge of distributed computing and making it as easy as they can. Okay. Inexpensive. Did they get into pricing there?
1: They did get into pricing, and it came out to like $1,200 a node okay so it's it's like a per node pricing it's not particularly expensive there were some add-ons if you want their encryption package that was an extra like four hundred dollars or something and they had a few other packages that if you wanted to add them on it would it would add to that licensing cost see i was like this is very affordable and it needs to be if it's going to be for a lot of locations <laughs> all at once the other two things that they showed was one You can present the storage as iSCSI storage to other nodes that are not part of the cluster, which means you can, if you need more compute beyond what those two nodes are doing, that's fine. You can just present the storage to those other nodes and they can use it.
0: And Magic is presenting the iSCSI interface. Yep. Mount software. So, okay. Yep. You can just mount those remotely and off you go.
1: Yeah. The other thing that they showed off is uh, a unified interface for multiple systems so if you're back at that central office and you're managing, you know, a hundred of these systems or a thousand, you don't want to ping every individual system. <laughs> you just want like a good dashboard view. So they're rolling that out. That is, I think, in in like private preview now. And then they're going to be rolling that out shortly.
0: When you we started the Store Magic segment, you said that it was the spiritual su- successor to HPE Store Virtual. Is Store Magic an HPE product? It is not.
1: It's the Store Magic is their own company. Um, part of the reason I said that is because this is exactly how Store Virtual worked, but they've added a bunch of additional capabilities to it. So the core premise of like the two-node cluster is kind of what store virtual was famous for. Um, but they've expanded it out to have a whole bunch of additional functionality layered on top.
0: Yeah. Anything else we should know about store magic, Ned? No, I think that's that's the
1: long and short of it. Definitely invite folks to watch their presentation on TechField days website if you want to know more about them but i want to get into the last one and this is probably my favorite presenter of the entire event so we're talking about
0: node weaver okay
1: node weaver not dream weaver yeah (laughs) that's the first thing i thought of and i think you too but
0: yeah i did too i I immediately thought of a dream weaver and then went node weaver i wonder if they're related or just a clever product name
1: yeah, and then you had that song playing through your head that we can't sing because yeah, we a don't want song. to get sued. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks for that. Appreciate the earworm. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. So who's
1: NodeWeaver, Ned? NodeWeaver is super cool because unlike the previous two companies, they are solely focused on the edge at the moment and what they have been working on. They're a startup and they're focused on creating an operating system and platform
0: specifically for edge. What would be the defining characteristics of an operating system that are specifically designed for the edge then?
1: For starters, you want it to be pretty modular. So you want to include only what is very necessary to have a functioning operating system and then be able to plug in additional components as needed. So you can keep its footprint relatively small. And they were talking about the most that they generally need on a system is one core and one gigabyte of RAM. To start up and run.
0: It feels a little bit like the unikernel model. We don't hear much about unikernels anymore, <laughs> but um, but it feels like that. Let's strip it back as much as we can, absolutely nothing that isn't strictly necessary and and so on, which created some of its own managerial operational challenges. But it feels like that. But this is this is more than that. This is a full-blown operating system. And yeah, so on.
1: yeah. This is not a unikernel. This is a full-blown okay. operating system. It's based off of Alpine Linux. And if you know anything about Alpine Linux, you know it starts pretty stripped down to begin. Yes.
0: It's one of my favorite for a lab, you know, stand up an Alpine Linux node if you just needed to do something very basic. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it comes up fast and
1: it doesn't have a whole bunch of junk that's running in the background. And that was sort of their starting point is let's start with that and then layer our platform on top of it. And they were really looking at how can we make this as zero touch as possible? How can we support the maximum number of different kinds of devices And how can we deliver a platform that supports things like orchestration and all the apps that might exist out there today in their various flavors? Based off what they were showing, I feel like they accomplished all of those goals. It was it was very impressive. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Oh my,
0: okay. So Ned was impressed. Okay, Ned. So tell us more.
1: Just walking through the platform a little bit, uh, it is able to run two different types of hypervisors. Uh, one that is fully para-virtualized, it's a very thin hypervisor for VM types that support that, and then an older, more traditional hypervisor that will present the full array of virtualized devices for VMs that require that style of virtualization.
0: But it's it's not hypervisor on bare metal, it's Alpine Linux on bare metal, and then then they've got their layer and, and hypervisor
1: uh, on top,
0: right? Yeah. And it is capable of running
1: Hyper-V VMs, VMware VMs, or anything that's like KVM based. So if you need to run a Windows VM on this thing, it, it'll do it. It'll run a Windows VM. So
0: surprisingly, there are plenty of Windows based applications still out there. Oh, yeah. Not surprised about that. Yeah, I, I, I know Linux is everything, everything the cool kids are talking about, but there's an awful lot of Windows stuff out there for sure. So, OK, yeah, I can see definitely see Windows as a need. So
1: that's the sort of virtual machine. The other compute layer they have in there is they have a bundled Kubernetes distribution that can be deployed if you decide to include it in your configuration. It's a uh, it's based off of MicroKates. So it will deploy a MicroKates Kubernetes cluster if you want. That's optional. And then run containers on top of that.
0: Yeah, MicroKate's is a distribution. It's been a while since I read about it, but it continues with NodeWeaver's theme of everything I need and nothing I don't, keeping it as stripped back as possible. Mm-hmm. MicroKate's is a distribution of Kubernetes that isn't all of it. It's a, it's a stripped back, more simplified flavor of Kubernetes, if I remember right.
1: Absolutely. And that's, that's their goal is like, keep it small, let the applications have as much room as they need. On the networking side, each node runs a virtual switch And so you can carve up the network as you want, and you can also spin up a virtual router on each one if you need to connect various networks together. Okay. And it supports security groups, too. So you can do some filtering and traffic
0: rules as well. Oh, I have so many questions that we can't get into all of them. We, we but, can't, uh, but it, we can't. There's so it much. It would be curious to see like, okay, they got a vSwitch <laughs> built in. There's multiple hypervisors they're running on top. They've got a cage distribution if you want that. All of which have their own networking interfaces. And now it sounds like they've got their own as well. So how the ingress and egress of packets goes through the kernel and up into the upper layers would be fascinating because it feels like they added yet another layer to it. So that'd be something I'm curious about.
1: Yeah, and I I would be happy to uh, send you over to them to answer all the networking questions (laughs) that I didn't ask. Fair enough, fair enough. From a storage perspective, they wrote their own distributed file system. Oh, why though? It's based off of some existing distributed file systems with their own like special sauce put on. But essentially, it kind of is the same thing that Magic is doing. It allows you to take physical storage from a bunch of the different nodes And then just kind of make it all one big pool of storage. And then you can carve it up however you want. You can set different levels of protection for different volumes that you provision. So you can provision a volume that has no protection. So it's just, you know, RAID (laughs) 0. If it's gone, it's gone. You could also do one that's running at, I think, protection level like 3, which would be the equivalent of like RAID 10. So it really depends on what level of protection and also performance you want for each one. And it will do its best to write the chunks out to the appropriate places.
0: The more you're describing this product, like, all of a sudden my brain's going, I think I want this in my house for lab <laughs> stuff. It feels like a great platform for that. Forget these edge guys with serious workloads. I got my old stuff to do in the basement net. I want some node weaver. Not only that, but they made the bold claim that it runs
1: on any device. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. slow your roll there, guys. Any device? And they're like, "Mm, pretty close. Because they run on x86, and they also run on ARM. And they're not picky about the x86. And not super picky about the ARM either. So they showed it running on a Raspberry Pi. I was just going to ask you that Raspberry Pi? Absolutely. You can run this thing on a a Pi. Uh, It just needs that minimum of one core and one gig of RAM. So you probably couldn't run it on a Pi 1. Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, like a Pi 4, no problem. They had it running on an Intel Atom box. They had it running on just a traditional x86. Uh, I forget what, which processor it was. It was
0: like a Xeon processor. It runs on all of those. And, and leaves enough that you can actually run something on top of it. It doesn't eat the entire box, even though they're that small.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. And then they got into how they handle the provisioning and configuration of the boxes. So what they do is they have basically uh, a bootloader that you put on a USB stick along with your desired configuration. And then you ship the devices to wherever the location is along with the USB stick and tell the person at the other end, put the USB stick in, plug in the network cables, power it on. And then it does zero-touch provisioning from there. The bootloader lays down the platform it finds the other nodes if they're up already on the same network and then it reaches out and phones home if that's an available option depending on the config that you've built
0: that's slick and that's where we should be at this point in time honestly with uh, all the work that's been done over the years with zero touch and uh, the ability to do that is certainly there but again it is slick even though yeah. it's not like you know groundbreaking it's still pretty awesome they did a live demo they had
1: five devices in the room and they had one delegate each power on the device with the USB stick and then wait. And while they continued the presentation and 10 minutes later, each of them got an email from that device saying that it had been provisioned and was spawning <laughs> home. <laughs> was well, like, that's
0: that's brave of NodeWeaver because we all know the curse of the demo gods. You don't do a live demo like that without a pretty high expectation that something's not going to work out. And if they did it in that scenario and uh, and pulled it off, that's... Again, brave, but maybe it speaks to the robustness of that boot up process and getting the nodes built. It's pretty cool, man.
1: The whole time, I'm just thinking, this is not just an Edge product. Like, I understand why you're targeting the Edge. It makes a lot of sense. It's a growth area. You're meeting all these requirements that the Edge has. And you're saying, like, any device, zero touch, air-gapped environments are okay, like all that. But I'm thinking what you were thinking. I could use this in my lab. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, can I afford it? In my lab is the question Ned. pricing is per node. I don't think they actually mentioned the pricing, but the guy basically said, if you want to run this as a demo or something inside your lab, we give you a trial license and we'll just re-up the trial license as often as you want. Like if you're running like two nodes in your lab, we don't care. If you want to start running this at scale, then we want your money. But like, if you want to try this out, You can do that for pretty uh, pretty much as long as you want, because they want you to get familiar with the platform and become, you know, a proponent of it, perhaps
0: that's an interesting option I need to consider. Uh, I'm right at the point where I need to re up my VMUG advantage for the next year. Cause I run hmm. uh, a few different VMware products to power my lab. Now it's not that expensive. It's, you know, it's 200 bucks a year. And I even got a 10% discount coupon from somebody who wants to make sure that I renew. So it's not that spendy at the same time. It's VMware. I've been using it for a long time. I'm pretty familiar with it. It is what it is. It's not exciting and new anymore. It just works, which I suppose is in its favor. But uh, but this sounds really neat. And and I would check the box for the microkates option to, uh, to to have that in the lab too, because that gives me some other interesting uh, things that I've wanted to play with in the lab without having to stand up my own Kubernetes clusters on uh, on VMware. So, but. Of course, their major thrust is edge. That That's mm-hmm. really where they're going. But did you feel like they were putting themselves in a box by making it an edge play? Yeah, no, I think
1: that's where they see the most potential for growth and less entrenched interests. So they don't feel like they have to displace as much. Whereas if you were trying to go after the cloud providers or like if you're trying to go after OpenShift or, or Rancher or like some other established product. You'd have more of a struggle with that because you're trying to displace them from an existing install. This is like, no, we're going after a lot of net new stuff that either doesn't exist or is growing like crazy. And we want to rock up and go, oh, you need to roll out a thousand nodes to these different locations in a couple of weeks. We can help you do that.
0: Well, Ned, anything else you wanted to mention about Edge Field Day 2? No, I think it was a
1: really cool event. It was on the shorter side, which I appreciate because each of those presentations, you really, you're really dialed in. You're paying attention. You're asking questions. You're tired at the end. So yeah. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm glad it was a little shorter. Uh, I attended virtually. I couldn't make the trek out to San Francisco, but that's because next week I'm going to be in San Francisco
0: for HashiConf. So I need to, to pick and choose my travel. I understand that. I understand that. Well, Ned, we don't do this often, but it's worth mentioning. How do people follow you on the internet? Oh my goodness. Well, I don't really use Twitter too much anymore, so I wouldn't recommend
1: going over there. If you want to talk to me these days, LinkedIn is honestly the best place to find me. That's where I'm posting all my content and responding to folks who reach out to me.
0: Very good. And uh, I am Ethan Banks, and you can uh, follow me in the same way. I'm over on LinkedIn these days, it's where I'm posting lots of things, including some original content as I take briefings and so on. And uh, thanks to you for listening all the way to the end. Virtual high fives, you awesome human. And if uh, you want to hit Ned and I up with maybe a topic request, something you'd like us to talk about, do a show on, fill out the request form on day2cloud.io. If you're into community, you like connecting with people that do what you do for work, we have a free Slack group that you can join. The Packet Pushers Podcast Network offers this. Visit packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. There's, last I checked, something like 2,500 different folks in there from all over the world. And it is a marketing-free zone. That is, you go in there, you're not getting hammered by people spamming you with you know product stuff. It's just people helping people is the big intent. Chatting and so on. Packetpushers.net slash Slack if you'd like to join. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.